in this episode of Journeys in Research. Identify what you lost and do it wholeheartedly. Uh, but the other thing is that be very aware of what's happening in your, your field, because at least in my field, in science, things change very rapidly. And if you want to perpetuate yourself in one area, regardless of how much you love it, then you're going to lose opportunities and the field might get stale and then you're not going to make progress. Dr. Jorge Piakarowicz is a Robert Olatin Distinguished Professor of Physics at FSU. In today's episode, Jorge and I talk about neutron stars, NASA rockets, carbon, collaboration, and mentorship. I'm Evangeline Coker, and you're listening to Journeys in Research. So I wanted to start, as far as your journey in research goes, at the very beginning. Sure. So going back into childhood, you became interested in science at an early age. Could you take us back to what interested you? Yes. Yeah, so, so my parents uh, didn't have even a high school education. Uh, but of course, being uh, from, from a Jewish family, they were very careful and that we, the kids, my sister who's older than me and myself, will have a great education. So they sent me to a great school. And then, I mean, I have to confess that my first love was not science. My first love was soccer. So during my childhood, all I, I remember is playing soccer. But uh, if, if you tell me you cannot play soccer, what else can you do? I really enjoyed a lot math and science. <clears throat> and, and you know what, how it is, right? If you enjoy something, uh, you're going to become good at it because you're going, that's what you will be doing day in, day out. That's my advice to everyone. Uh, from early on, uh, try to engage in something that you absolutely love. Then you will never have to, they say, if you engage with something you, lo you love, you'll never have to work one day in your life because it will, never feel, it will never feel like work. It will always feel like you're fulfilling a, a dream. And, and that's how I feel even at my age. I mean, I, I still love what I'm doing. And that love of math and science from childhood is, is what brought you to physics, which is an ever-changing field. So doing what you love in an ever-changing field like that means that what you love is always being reinterpreted, right? It's always changing. Yes, yes. So, so in university, you're even even as a as a undergrad, you you are supposed to to work on a senior project, a senior research project. So I worked in Mexico with a nuclear physicist, and and then I don't know if it was inertia or circumstances. I continue in that path. So nuclear physics is basically the main focus of nuclear science is studying uh, protons and neutrons and, that, and the glue that holds them together inside every single atomic nucleus that you can imagine. So, so that's basically what nuclear physics is defined, but to tell you the truth, it's much, much broader. And certainly it's in the sense that um, we have forged a very strong connection with astrophysics. And that connection has actually strengthened to, during the last two decades. Um, and especially in the field of stellar astrophysics, trying to understand stars. So, for example, if you can take a star like our sun, right? We all know our sun. 
So the sun generates an enormous amount of energy and it generates the energy by essentially taking protons that were actually created during the Big Bang or shortly after. So we're talking 13.7 billion years ago. And then essentially they fuse that hydrogen into a more complex atomic nucleus, which is the nucleus of helium. And in the process generate an enormous amount of energy. And that's how the sun shines. And that's how the sun will continue shining for about 5 billion more years. But then it will die. And stars, just like humans, essentially have exactly the same kind of, of pattern. They are born, they go through life, and then eventually they die. So the sun will die in about 5 billion years. But what is really interesting is stars that are much more massive than our sun because they really live spectacular lives and die in incredible, what we call supernova explosions. So stars more massive than our sun are not only uh, taking hydrogen and making helium, but they can also take what we call the helium ashes and then burn them into more complex nuclei. So for example, helium in stars burns to make uh, carbon, right? So if you, me, or whoever lives on the planet looks at our genetic uh, fingerprint, blueprint, you will see, of course, that we are carbon-based life forms. So if you ask, uh, where is that carbon coming from? Well, every single carbon in your body was actually forged in the interior of stars. And of course, from carbon, you get oxygen. From oxygen, eventually, you get iron and, and calcium and everything that that you feel that those are chemical elements essential for life, those were created in the interior of very massive stars. But then eventually uh, they will also die and they die in a explosion. We call it a supernova explosion, which is remarkable. The latest we have witnessed was in 1987 in the Southern Hemisphere. And they are such a enormous explosions that if you can look at the explosion from that star, that actually outshines the entire galaxy. So one single star during the explosive phase uh, outshines the entire galaxy. But the thing that is even more interesting is that, of course, during that explosion, the star scatters to the interstellar space. All these chemical elements that, was, that, that it was forging in the interior through millions and millions of years. And eventually that material gets collected in something we call the solar system or in a small planet we call Earth. And that's why we're here. So there is a very famous astronomer called Carl Sagan who coined the term, we are stardust. And it's, it's really true because every, as I said, every single atom that you see in your body that it's made out of carbon or calcium or iron, it was actually made in the interior of massive stars. From death that all the building blocks of life can only really be released. Exactly. So stars die so we can live. Yeah. It's absolutely true. Wow. Is that, is that what keeps you interested in stars and in, in that astrophysics research? Yes. And, and, and it's interesting because people laugh when I say, I, I'm very interested in stars, but especially the dead ones. Yeah. So, <laughs> so what happened is that after this gigantic explosion, this supernova explosion, then there is a small compact object left behind. And there are two outcomes. It can be a black hole or 
a neutron star, which is almost like a black hole, but never develop enough mass to actually become a black hole. So neutron stars are, if you want, uh, the precursors to black holes uh, because they don't have enough mass to be a black hole. But they're extraordinarily interesting because they pack the mass of the sun uh, in a radius or the size that it's a typical size of a city, right? So imagine that what happens is that the sun has a dimension of about 1 million kilometers. So if you look at the radius of the sun, it has a dimension of like 1 million kilometers, a little bit less. If you look at the neutron stars, it has a dimension of only 10 kilometers, right? So that we're talking now the size of the city. So it's like, imagine taking the sun and then squeezing and squeezing and squeezing until the density is so incredibly large in the interior of a neutron star that if you can take a sugar cube made out of neutron star, it will weigh the same as all of humanity combined. So neutron stars are made out of material that we cannot recreate here on earth. So for the first years, much of what we knew about neutron stars was basically done by theoretical calculations. But then at the beginning, I mentioned that we have fostered this very, very strong collaboration with our astrophysical friends, because what has happened during the last two decades is that we have deployed a lot of different missions out of space that have actually been able to provide us with a very, very pristine and clear picture of what a neutron star is. So now it's a, it's a really nice partnership between nuclear physics and astrophysics because we do the calculations here on Earth, we predict something, but then they go, they look, they, they probe as much as they can, and then they come back uh, with results that actually can refine our theoretical estimates of the properties of neutron stars. So what keeps me up and gives me joy is actually the neutron stars. And this very nice marriage that, that we have been able to, uh, to consume with our astrophysics friends, because it's a completely different physics community. Uh, but as you said at the beginning, right, this evolution of the fields, then tell you that, well, if you really want to exploit what your field can say about other disciplines, um, then you adjust your research and then you can impact strongly what other, other fields of physics are doing and vice versa, right? They are also instrumental in what we do. So this is not something that you could have just done within one department or one area. You needed that collaboration. Oh, absolutely. If you tell me, if you tell me how do I deploy a telescope and what do I look in a telescope, I will tell you I have, this, I have not the slightest idea how that works, right? Uh, these guys make out uh, these incredible, incredible devices that they test and retest because once you deploy them into space, uh, basically the testing is all over, right? And, and then one of the latest missions that we have that goes from for the, uh, by the name of NICER, uh, as it sounds, right? Is the Neutron Star Interior Composition Explorer. And NICER is an X-ray telescope that actually looks into a variety of neutron stars and then passes that information to us to be able to refine our models. So 
the other community that has also forged a very strong uh, partnership with us, with nuclear physics community, is what we call the gravitational wave community, so um, or general relativity community. So then, basically, hundred years ago, uh, Einstein actually uh, proposed what we now understand to be the most sophisticated theory of gravity. Right. So remember, there is this picture of Newton sitting in a below a tree and then the apple hitting his head and say, Eureka. And then now I know how everything works. Mm-hmm. But uh, so so Newton is correct, but Einstein is even more correct. So he made some refinements. And one of the most interesting uh, consequences of the Einstein theory of general relativity is that in the same way that if you shake a charge, Uh, it emits electromagnetic radiation, which is, for example, what we see from the sun. If you actually shake very violently masses, they also uh, emit radiation, but it's not electromagnetic radiation, it's gravitational radiation. But the signal is so incredibly feeble that it took 40 years for people to construct what we call the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. We have two in the US, one in Louisiana and one in Washington state. There is a third one in Italy near Pisa uh, that actually in 2017 detected the first collision of two neutron stars. So it's a binary system. By that, I mean, you have two stars. They start revolving around each other, but because they emit gravitational waves, then that carries energy that the stars lose. So as they lose energy, they get closer and closer and closer into the moment where they merge, right? And when they merge, they emit this amazing amount of gravitational waves. And of course, it's an explosion that you can see with electromagnetic devices. But the important thing is that for the first time we saw the collision of two neutron stars and the gravitational waves that were emitted from those were also detected here on Earth. And those also play very important constraints on neutron star physics, because of course there are two neutron stars. So now you have this beautiful triangle between laboratory experiments. uh, You have missions from NASA, for example, that are looking at the electromagnetic radiation from neutron stars, and then a new window which is gravitational wave astrophysics. And we all together are trying to understand this mystery of the, of the universe and in particularly of neutron stars. I wanted to talk some about the facility for rare isotope beams and, and how that fosters this collaborative research triangle you're talking about. So there is an enormous amount of physics, if you can imagine, right? That nuclear physicists by by themselves, we cannot actually be able to analyze all these wealth of information. And that's why we formed this partnership. So the the mission of this FRIB, which stands for the Facility for Rare Isotope Beams, which is a gigantic laboratory under construction on the campus of Michigan State University. Um, The connection to these three discipline effort is in trying to understand again where the heavy elements were formed. The the experiments are not running. It will probably operate at the end of this year or beginning of 2022. 
but what a wonderful gift from literally from heaven, right? These two neutron stars that are now making this journey into trying to understand here in laboratories on Earth, uh, how these very heavy elements are made. Uh, it's, a, it's a perfect partnership. So one of the main science drivers for EFRIB is understanding where the heavy elements were formed. And then there's the EFRIB Theory Alliance. You've been a member of this initiative for many years and are currently its director. Yes. Could you talk about the uh, mission of the EFRIB Theory Alliance and, and how that's going? Yeah, so so the so there are two components to, to this EFRIB effort. There is the largest experimental effort because it's a big, big experimental facility, right? And they're going to be doing wonderful experiments and some experiments that actually have a strong impact on this creation of the heavy elements. But where the theory alliance comes in is, okay, you're going to do these wonderful experiments. Who is going to be able to tease out from these experiments the jewel of information uh, that will going to inform the field and moving forward? So the EFRIP Theory Alliance, which I was a member for five years and director for four, uh, is one of these initiatives that is working now in conjunction with the experimental colleagues in trying to propose experiments and be able to make interpretation of the experiments in order to move the, the field forward. Yeah, and the Alliance has created a hiring program for different universities, is that right? Yeah, so the Every Theory Alliance mission is really to, to play its role as serious trying to make sense of the experiments. That's a very, very important mission of the Alliance. But another critical mission of the Alliance is to grow the field. So it's very, very hard to hire new colleagues at universities. The way it happens at FSU or at many, many places is that either we lose colleagues because they retire or we lose colleagues because they're being snatched by other universities. But if in a steady state scenario, it's very, very hard to bring new blood into departments. So what the Syria Alliance is doing is two things. First of all, grad students that just finished, they have the opportunity to become postdocs, but at a much higher level. So we call these not postdocs, we call them fellows. And then these fellowships go to a, a university and they stay at that university in training for a period of up to five years. So then they develop enormous skills because for example, there are colleagues at, young colleagues at Michigan State University where things like this is happening, although not limited to Michigan State University, it can also go to other places. But for these slightly more senior people, some of them that may have been fellows for five years, now you really want to incorporate them permanently into the field. So what the Theory Alliance has done is they have created these bridge positions between the Every Theory Alliance and various universities throughout the country. So the first two hires were at one university, was at Washington University in San Luis. The third hire was at North Carolina State University. And I'm happy to report that the fourth hire is at Florida State University. 
So we are in the process of hiring a new colleague that will do theoretical nuclear physics with emphasis on FRIB physics that we would not have been able to hire if not because of the bridge position. So this is an incredibly useful opportunity because the attraction for the physics department and in particular for Florida State is that the commitment from the Theory Alliance is to pay half of the salary of this person for the first six years or until this person gets promoted and tenured. So it's a very, very serious commitment, uh, which of course the Dean of Arts and Science and the Department of Physics welcome with open arms, because I think that's the only option for the department to grow and the uh, effort in nuclear theory in our, in our university to grow as well. Mm, yeah, and, and so this fourth fellow is a, a pretty recent addition, right? Well, uh, I mean, we are in negotiations. Right now, so, yeah. So, so in a couple of weeks, we might know who will be joining us, which nice. will be fantastic. Yeah, so, it, so this is break, breaking news, yeah. right? And, <laughs> and it wouldn't have happened uh, without that partnership with the, with the Theory Alliance. It's only through this partnership that we're committed. We are a strong department. We're committed to do science of relevance to the mission of the laboratory. And in return, they will be paying for the salary, half of the salary of this person for the first six years. Is there a main funder for that Theory Alliance? Yes, yes. So the Theory Alliance, um, as well as my research, even though they're completely decoupled, is through the Office of Science uh, of the Department of Energy. So the Office of Science has different, different scopes. And then one of those scopes is nuclear physics. And then nuclear physics, the Department of Energy funds this theory alliance and actually funds many of the physics members of our department already. So uh, I have colleagues doing experimental nuclear physics that are being funded by the Department of Energy. My own research is funded by the Department of Energy. The research of my high energy colleagues also at Florida State is being funded by the Department of Energy. So the Department of Energy has been instrumental in supporting research at Florida State. How might you suggest people who are interested in being funded by DOE go about beginning that relationship? Sure. So, um, so in physics, there are two, well, actually three main agencies that will fund your research. So it's the Department of Energy and the National Science Foundation. But then if you're doing astrophysics, um, NASA is also able to fund you. For, for young scientists, I think it's very, very important to realize, and I, and I think my younger colleagues already realize that when, when they apply for the job, like for example, the fellow that's gonna join us, that um, Florida State University will pay you for your teaching mission within the university. Right, so we are researchers, but we're also instructors. And um, we teach mostly during the spring and the fall. There is some effort during the summer, but it's a much, much lower level. So for example, for those nine months of the spring and fall semester, that's how I draw my salary from Florida State University. But then during the summer, we devote ourselves, because we don't teach, to really push our research as hard as we can. 
we want to go to conferences, right? To exchange ideas with our astrophysics or gravitational wave colleagues. Um, so you have to pay for that and you pay by applying through a grant that can be in my case, for example, the Department of Energy. Do you want to support uh, grad students, which of course are the lifeblood of a, of a research program at any university, right? Then it's not the university who pays for the grad students, it's the grants that pay for the grad students. And uh, if you don't wanna go hungry in the summer, then you have to supplement the salary from FSU with your summer salary that comes through the grants, let's say in my case, the Department of Energy. So uh, applying for a grant uh, requires some work. FSU is very, very good because it has uh, lots of uh, different efforts, lectures, and people that can help. Of course, within the department, uh, the idea is to mentor your younger colleagues. And I think physics is very good at that. So we try to help them prepare a grant, which will be competitive so that they can be funded. And, and that's basically what we do. And there are many, many um, uh, agencies, of course. I mean, clearly, if you're doing uh, English literature, you're not being funded by the same sources. Uh, but I think the process is very similar. I think that my advice will be look for a, for a mentor uh, that you trust, uh, that can sit uh, with you and then help you na navigate these subtle points of writing grants. Um, I think, of course, in my opinion, everything is about, in my case, about the science, right? It's, we're not doing politics. We're not doing, we're not curing cancer. We're doing physics and science is the important thing. So, we make sure to advise our, uh, our young colleagues to write very, very strong proposals with very, very strong science to have a very good chance to succeed. So how might you suggest a young researcher pinpoint which mentor would be right for them? Yeah, I think, I mean, to tell you the truth, that, that is a question that I often get asked, but not by my young colleagues, but more by grad students. So I have a very good relation with grad students because in the past, I used to teach lots of grad courses. And I mean, you can imagine our graduate population is about half domestic, but half is foreign, right? So these are, these are students that are coming all over the world. They have left family behind. They have left loved ones, culture, everything, right? So as an immigrant, I was always very, very aware of, of the difficulties that you can face. So when I talk to them, I always invite myself into their lives, right? Said, if you have any question, please make sure to come to me. My door is always open, so on and so forth. You can ask about physics, but you can also ask about what do I do with my utilities or something since you just moved here. Uh, so I think trying to establish a good relation with your mentor is absolutely crucial. Um, normally what happens is that, for example, the new person that will be joining us uh, in, as part of the bridge partnership with the AFRIP Alliance is very likely going to be mentored by a nuclear theorist because he's doing nuclear theory, right? So the mentorship involves a commonality in research interest, and that's the part that we will help them uh, with writing proposals, for example, but it also involves 
uh, just navigating teaching courses, right? So if these are postdocs that are just getting into, into an assistant professor position, the livelihood of them teaching is probably null. So, so also that's one of the things that you wanna make sure, right? You wanna make sure that the new faculty in your department uh, are not being asked to teach the most taxing and difficult courses as they arrive. So we in physics always try to give them relatively light assignments so that they can devote most of the time to research. They don't have to prepare enormous classes. You also have to tell them what's the standard. For example, teaching for the physics department, it's incredibly important. All of our courses are being taught by faculty. We never have grad students teaching courses. So we use grad students, for example, teaching labs or helping during recitations, but the main lectures are always being delivered by a faculty member. So, so, so that's something that if you, if you come from departments where grad students actually do a lot of the heavy lifting about on the teaching side, you might not know that you're coming to a department that takes teaching so seriously. Um, so I think it's, it's not easy to identify a mentor. I think it's the job, I think, of the mentor to reach out to the new faculty and make ourselves available. And unfortunately, uh, you will recognize as a young faculty very early on if someone has picked the right mentor for you or not. If someone is avoiding trying to guide you through these difficulties and subtleties, uh, ask for a different mentor. Uh, because a mentor, I mean, I had a mentor when I came here, and I'm enormously grateful. My mentor, uh, his name is Kirby Kemper. Um, he was an older member of the department who then became the, the chair of the department and eventually became the VP for research for the university, who was a fantastic mentor, right? And because it's important to look in a mentor, someone that it's tough love, right? So, so Kirby genuinely loves me, but never shies away to tell me what I'm doing wrong. And that is also very important because as, as a young faculty, you, you make a lot of mistakes and then you want to make sure that, that they steer you in the right direction. So mentorship is absolutely critical. Um, and, and also as a, as a young faculty, I think it must be a little bit of a, I, I don't want to approach all my colleagues, but feel free. I think that that's a right that you, you've earned. Uh, and if you think that someone is nice, he makes you laugh during faculty meetings, which is hard because faculty meetings for the most part are very boring, then reach out, reach out. And then he or she will probably become wonderful mentors for you. How would you suggest those who are in higher positions sort of uh, position themselves as, as strong mentors? Yeah, I think that's something that you cannot teach. Right. I mean, that's something that um, I mean, in my case, I'm truly grateful for everything that has happened to me since I moved many, many years ago from Mexico to the U.S. At every stage, even as a grad student or postdoc and here at FSU, I've had wonderful people that were trying to help me, uh, advise me how how best to move. And and having a good mentor is an important part of your success. Yeah, if you if you could give one piece of advice to faculty researchers out there, whether in your field or not, what would it be? It's always do what you love. 
there, there is no sugarcoating that because, I mean, the hope is that we are faculty members for many decades, right? I mean, uh, the, the, the concept of tenure is precisely the security that you can engage in research that might be risky, right? So if I work now as a professor at FSU and I said, you know what, this is a very risky project, but it might pay enormous dividends. Uh, it might take me three years, four years. That's something that I could never do in a company, right? I mean, if I don't produce for a company and I tell them I'm working in this wonderful project that it's gonna take me four years, so don't bother me and I'll see you in four years, I will be fired, but not at the university, right? So, um, so you're gonna be in this university hopefully for a very, very long time. So identify what you lost and do it wholeheartedly. Uh, but the other thing is that be very aware of what's happening in your, in your field, because um, at least in my field, in science, things change very rapidly. And if you want to perpetuate yourself in one area, regardless of how much you love it, then you're going to lose opportunities and the field might get stale and then you're not going to make progress. So certainly be aware of the dynamics, changes in your field. Uh, but absolutely, uh, wake up every morning uh, saying, I wouldn't do anything else but go to work and, do, and keep doing my research. Uh, because, I mean, I've been doing this for so long, and the fact that you can still love what you're doing is really, really fantastic. That's awesome. Thank you so much. My pleasure. My pleasure. Journeys in Research is a production of the Office of Research Development at Florida State University. Stay up to date with content by subscribing to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information, visit us on our homepage, ord.fsu.edu. We'd love to hear from you. Please send questions or suggestions for episodes to ord.fsu.edu with the word podcast in the title. Music for this episode by Ketza. I'm Evangeline Coker. Thanks for listening. <laughs>